Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. Today's episode will be about navigating uncertainty, inclusive practices for more sustainable change, and leading from within. I'm delighted to welcome Everett Harper, author of Move to the Edge and Declare It Center. Everett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I'm really excited, and I think we're going to have a really great, great conversation. And thank for thank you for the listeners to uh, tuning in. Thank you for coming on the show, Everett. You are the CEO and founder of Trust, a values-driven, human-centered software development company, and you've been pioneering uh, remote working and inclusive working practices for some time now. In fact, I think you now span more than thirty states. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But you also have a biomedical and an electrical engineering degree, and you are an accomplished soccer player. Mm-hmm. And clearly, I haven't listed everything. But in keeping with this eclectic list, I know you're also constantly pioneering and reframing on global social and business issues yeah. to equip people to create a more equitable and inclusive way of doing business, of making decisions and navigating today's world, which is essentially hugely complex. So. You state in your book that we can't have the benefits of a diverse and vibrant company without acknowledging when it gets hard. Yeah. And that's so true. And I love that quote. So I would like to start with that. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us a moment when you moved to your edge? So you had to step into the unknown and address a complex issue. I mean, you evoke several in your book, but what does this mean for you moving to the edge? Yeah. Uh, So thanks for the question. What it means to me in a very pragmatic way is how do I encounter when I don't know the answer? Mm. How do I navigate when I don't know the answer? And I'm sure you, myself, and most of the listeners, we were trained on having the right answer. Yeah. (laughs) Is there a right answer to climate change or racial injustice Mm. or forest fires or the hunger crisis that's growing? Instead, I think what's called for with leaders is saying, I don't know, how can I ask better questions? How can I use tools to get other Mm. insights? How do I identify my own blind spots? Mm. All of those are questions that move you towards the edge. The second part is, how do you feel when you're on the edge and you don't know the answer? (laughs) Emotional. A lot of us go as far away from that experience (laughs) as possible. (laughs) Run away. But precisely when... I think our world needs leaders who can stand in not knowing Mm. and model that for others creates a space where we all can start to ask questions of each other and start to figure out new solutions. Mm. And what it takes is to kind of be able to hold that space and say, I don't know. Mm. That for me is, is what moving to the edge means. And to give an example, you, you asked at the beginning of the question, when Orlando Castile and a couple other folks were uh, murdered during this one summer, it affected a lot of people at my company. Mm. And I didn't know the answer. I didn't know what the right thing to say was, but I knew that I had to say something. Mm. I knew I had to write people, especially because we're a remote company. They're looking for how to make sense of this experience. And so I thought about it and thought about it, but I wrote the letter I wrote to my company in about 15 minutes. It was really clear once it came to me. Mm. And it was basically saying, I don't know the answer. This is hard. I know it affects you. If you need to take a couple of hours, take it. It's okay. But 
as a CEO of a company, I think it is important to recognize that if we're going to be human beings together at this company and take on really important challenges, we also have to acknowledge when it's hard. And mm. right now it's hard. So take the time you need to. We got your back. Mm. And those words sound so simple to say or to put in a letter, but they're not. it's not a simple action, is it? If we go back to what you were saying about traditional education and formatting of you know, he who has the right answer or she who has the right answer is is the stronger leader, et cetera, et cetera. That must have called for quite a lot of courage. Yeah. I mean, it's it's weird to say it in, in my own mm. in my own defense, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. I think it took for me recognizing there's a choice I had. Yeah. Do I say nothing or do I say do I say something? There's some choices that are binary. Mm. Or do I say some, do I send somebody else to say something? I guess there's a couple other choices. Mm. And it just felt like the, the the responsible responsibility of a leader that I have to say something. And Absolutely. so I did my best that I could. And what was the outcome of that? I think people took a collective sigh of relief. <laughs> I think people were like, wow, okay, we actually can be human mm. here. Mm. And it paid off because in further issues, we had a person who was two blocks from the site where George Floyd was killed. We have people who were nearby in Washington, D.C. during the January 6th insurrection. Mm. There are people who have family and relations down in South Texas when Uvalde happened. Mm. So this affects us, right? Mm. But now people know that we're not going to shy away from it. We don't, again, no one asked for an answer. They just has to be recognized. And if it's a hard day, to have a little bit of grace. So maybe that was it. It's really, I was calling in some grace for our company. Hmm. I like that, calling in some grace hmm. into that space that you've created because you've moved to the edge. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first part of your intriguing title to the point. Hmm. So the second part, Declare It Center, what happens next then? So. The transition from moving to the edge, you find out new skills, Mm. new information, new processes, and there are ways to find those things out. There are lots of different techniques I talk about in the book. Mm. But a lot of innovations die in the vine because you don't have an infrastructure for taking Mm. those innovations and putting them into a system. Mm. So ask BlackBerry and ask uh, (laughs) any number of companies. Kodak had digital uh, Mm -hmm. film a long time, but didn't know how to deal with that. Mm. And so the second part, Declare It Center, is saying, okay, once I understand that this is a direction we're going, or this is an innovation, or this is a new practice I want to adopt, how do I create a system? That system enables you to scale it Mm. for more people, to share it, because... Uh, innovations die if no one else can can participate in innovation and sustain it. And that for me is the critical piece. How can you make an innovation or a new practice so embedded in your normal operations that you don't have to think about it anymore? It's like developing a new habit. Mm. And if you can develop that habit, it can be sustained because heroism is not sustainable. No, really. Systems are. Yeah. And so that's the the second part of the book. Innovate, mm. create systems. And I think, you know, that's one of the biggest gaps in skills of decision makers today is critical systems thinking and yep. also managing complexity. So, you know, there are some great case studies in the book and we don't have time to discuss them all, unfortunately, mm. but around 
complex world issues, um, the World Central Kitchen, uh, government policymakers, um, yeah. building your own company trust. But you also touch on the human reaction and the price we pay for trying to blindly navigate <laughs> such yeah. complexity yeah. Um, without moving to the edge, even before we talk about scaling it so that it's uh, systemic change. That's right. So this is where you talk about interior and exterior practices, which I found particularly relevant in a world that's moving into this more interconnected ecosystem mm-hmm. um, type of world where things can't be boxed off. <laughs> so, yeah. just, you know, you can't put it back into silos or into, you know, manageable sort of pieces. So can you tell us more about the interior exterior practices and what they bring to the management of complex systemic problems. Yeah. So let me start with one sort of small definitional piece, which is the difference between complex problems and complicated problems. In the book, I talk about this and I'll shorten it. Mm. Complicated problems are problems that are more well understood, more linear, and interactions between different elements are uh, well known. Mm. So you have to build a plane. It's expensive. Mm. It takes a long time, but it's well understood. So mm-hmm. you can build it. You can build a plane with a yeah. plan and enough money. Complex problems may have millions of parts, also, but the interactions are not as known. They're not as predictable. So you can optimize for one part of a system and cause havoc in a different part of that system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's sort of the nature of complex problems. Mm-hmm. Think of a traffic accident on a bridge. One small, if it's in the right lane, some days, no problem. If it's in the left lane, then it backs up for an hour. Mm. It's a complex system Mm. of interactions and interconnected actions. So the interior and exterior practices are necessary to deal with complex problems. So rather than freezing and saying, I don't know how to address things that I don't understand, there are practices, exterior practices that say, Yes, you can lean into different ways of doing customer research. Mm. You can deal with how do you plan for unknowns? You can do pre-mortems. You can, and a variety of other tools that I lay out. And then second, um, when it comes to interior practices, that's more about, well, you can have all the frameworks in the world, but if you're not aligned inside, then you might be applying those frameworks in the wrong situations or not sticking with it, or yeah, just misapplying it, I think is really the the key piece. Mm. So the interior practices are really about leaders saying, okay, how do I deal with uncertainty? How do I feel when I'm uncertain? How do I practice making good decisions Mm. when I'm uncertain? Because many of us, you know, get the freeze, flight, fight response. And what we really need to be able to do is hold be comfortable being uncomfortable, and then make decisions from that place. Mm. The interior practices are about building that skill. And if we go back to the exterior practices around complicated and complex, mm. what, what do you see happening today around, because my view on this is that most people are trying to manage complex problems in a comp- with a complicated lens. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so what happens there in terms of, your decision-making framework. So where are they, where would you be leading them to? So do you mean sort of where you see, where I might see somebody misapplying it or? Okay, sure. I'll give you an example. Healthcare.gov was one of those. 
it was a project that was trying to enable more people to get uh, to participate in healthcare mm. exchanges who were uninsured. Mm. The builders of that project made a lot of assumptions that this is the way software will work. They had 27 different companies executing on different pieces over, I think, three or four years, mm. well over $200 million, et cetera. And they assumed that the problem was complicated. Do this this thing this way, this thing this way, link them up together, it will work. They forgot one. Oh, and sounds everybody simple. executed on that. It sounds mm. perfect, right? It's well yeah. understood. But they forgot one thing that's a complex problem, which is called human beings. <laughs> Humans are complex. And they do things like when it was launched, people went to the site just to see what it was about. There's all this hype about it. It was mm. a big policy decision. And so they bombarded the site not to fill out applications. They just wanted to see what it was. They didn't figure that out at mm. advance. And so the site crashed. Under not that much load, it just wasn't designed to accommodate that surge in people. And when it crashed, it created all these other problems because it's a complex system. Mm. Mm. So then what we had to do, we were part of the team that helped fix it. What we had to do was pull it all apart and understand, well, I don't know what's going wrong. As my co-founder said, if everything's on fire, where do you put the hose first? Mm. <laughs> so we had to make sure they had to make some choices. Mm. That's a misapplication example with really, really expensive consequences. I'll give you another really quick one. I talk about this in the in the book, but uh, sensors. Oh yes, sensors, yes. and you know, uh, there's a common story. I'm the only one who's where the soap dispenser is not putting things on my hand because it was not designed to oh. see dark skin. Dark skin, and that's actually well established. And there's a very particular sensor you can use. That doesn't do that well. Hmm. If there was a dark-skinned person at the product meeting, I'll yeah. bet they would have asked, hey, I know you have all this data, but you did it. And assuming that it's a very linear thing, someone puts their hand under there and it's a certain hmm. type of hand. Well, when hmm. you put a different kind of hand under there, do you have the same response or do we have to do something different? Hmm. And I also go on to say that that's annoying to not have a soap dispenser work, but in an era of automated vehicles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, These yeah. are automated trucks who can't see people walking across the street. Would you trust mm. a truck if you're dark skinned walking across the street with your child? No, you wouldn't. That could mm. be fatal. And one thing that just came out, the oximeters that read oxygen levels in your finger. Yeah. And this was really important during COVID because that would help doctors make decisions about who goes into the hospital and who doesn't. Those sensors did not read the oxygen levels of dark-skinned people accurately. And so they believe, and there's some data to, to corroborate this, that a lot of people who should have been hospitalized did not because of the misreading of a sensor because it couldn't read through dark skin. Mm. That's, again, fatal. That's an example of adding complexity to a problem. Not everybody is the same. Yeah, Failing to do that created people's uh, well actually created fatalities it's mm. very very clear mm. and it brings me to two questions i have so one around the evolution of technology and i, I remember that uh, story from the book about the hand sensors thinking yeah we really need to understand how we stop 
ourselves from coding bias into yes, technology, exactly. AI, machine learning, and because the machine is going to learn what we tell it to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part, and also the diversity of perspective and diversity of users that, that right. you need to represent the population you're actually making the product for or the software for. And brings me to a second question around diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. But let's start with the evolution of technology. So if I look at that very simple example that could have quite massive consequences, you know, what does that mean for how people should be moving to the edge and using your decision-making framework? Yeah. So the way I think about it is blind spots. Mm. Everybody has blind spots. Everyone. Yeah. A lot of leaders may not be willing to admit that Mm. because they're trying to get the right answer again, right? I I am supposed to know it all. Yes. The reality is most of us don't know it, and there's more that we don't know than we do know. Mm. So starting from that perspective, how do I reduce the blind spots that I have? Okay, that's what a leadership team would give, right? But is that leadership team... representing a variety of perspectives. They may, from their different areas, sales may have a different perspective than Mm -hmm. operations. But if there's not diverse voices around, if there's not female leadership, if there's Mm -hmm. not uh, people of color in leadership, then where do you go to get information? And then last is, okay, the leadership team may know something. You may have a diverse leadership team, but they're not close to the problem anymore. Mm. In a certain size organization, the people who are closer to the problems are people who are dealing with it on a day-to-day basis. Are there ways to get their opinions and their perspectives into the decision-making process in a way that they're psychologically safe to be Mm. honest and candid? Yeah. All that is, for me, what goes into a leader's toolkit that I talk about in the book, which is Mm. modeling, being interested in being open, having open feedback loops quickly having diverse voices, and then creating psychological safety among a team so people can be candid. Hmm. But I think, you know, it's vulnerable, isn't it? To, to, yeah. And I always think that on the subject of, on all these subjects, but particularly of bias and sort of unconscious bias and vulnerability and things that aren't in a framework today as such for a leader, mm-hmm. then, you know, stepping over your fear and stepping into a space where you might get it wrong where you're not quite sure what you should be saying or what you could say or what yep. the other person is going to say. You know, I, I always discuss with leaders that it's just about getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Absolutely. <laughs> because moving to the edge is uncomfortable, isn't it? That's the exciting part as well, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite scary. Which brings me back to, you know, you mentioned diverse voices, and I'm a big believer and I work a lot with leaders and organizations on what I call deep democracy. So getting everybody's mm-hmm. voice heard. For innovation, of course, but also for psychological safety and mm-hmm. well-being. And we know that innovation happens at the edges of systems. Yep. And that's where we also find the marginal voices. And that's where the group wisdom comes from, from, from my point of view. So how do you get those voices heard? And how do you make sure that your meetings are inclusive and that are taking into account that diversity of perspective. So in general in organizations and then also more particularly in trust, I would be interested. Sure. So two parts to that question. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll say the overlay, it is a constant iteration of getting better. There's yeah. not one answer. Mm-hmm. We are a remote company, for example. Mm-hmm. So 
doing an all hands meeting is not getting everybody in in one room right so there's different there's there's different modalities that mm-hmm. but i think there's some principles that are important one is how quickly do you have how quickly do you have feedback loops can you ask in a tiny pulse survey how people are doing will they give answers back mm-hmm. If you only have 20 or 30% people who are answering, then you got a problem, not about the answer, but about, whoa, I am really disconnected. Mm. So that's a problem to then overcome. If um, So that's around feedback. Mm. The second is, do you honestly have a diverse company, right? You can measure by numbers in various demographics and psychographics, et cetera. And Mm. that's an important starting point because if you don't have any women in your organization, you have a massive mm. blind spot. End of story. What do you want to do with that? Mm. But it's only a starting point, isn't it? It's absolutely a starting yeah. point, but you have to start somewhere. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And I say that not trivially because as we, you probably experienced as well, it is very easy not to get started. There's I enough guess. fear mm. in not knowing that, oh, wait, I don't know what to do, and you freeze. Yeah. The goal is to keep going. At Trust, one of the things that we do to get to the question of like, what do we specifically do? We have things called retrospectives. They're a tool that Mm. any company at any size can use Mm. on a regular basis to learn. But they typically come from the agile world, don't they? Yeah. but That's what I've heard about them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely comes from an agile world. But for those who aren't familiar with that, it can still be used in different contexts. Very briefly. Get a group of people who have been working on a project. You have a retrospective and you spend 10 minutes writing down, or sorry, yeah, 10 minutes writing down what went well mm. in our project. And you do this on a regular basis, by the way. It's not necessarily just at the end. 10 minutes, what went well, you put them on a board, you discuss them all. Uh, and you vote in like which ones you discuss in depth. It's important to remember what you did well because <laughs> you want to repeat those things, right? Mm. Then the next one is what didn't go well. Spend 15 minutes writing those mm. down. Because and then, that's what uh, our brain is wired for, though, isn't it, though? That's what our brain yeah. is wired for, to look at what didn't go well. Yeah, right. So you have to, as a, as a leader, you want to model what went well. The key to all this is it's a blameless retrospective. The point is to learn. And it sometimes takes a while to build that trust with an organization. Mm. Because we've all been experienced where we were candid and then we were shut down. Yeah. Instead, to say, we're discussing them all. I'm sorry, we're discussing the one that the group votes on. We do the writing down of the issues that people want to address privately. Why? Because introverts generally lean towards, I want to write it down in private. I want to have, and it can be anonymous if the team wants it to be. Uh, and that creates a space for more voices to be heard. If it was just simply raise your hand, yeah. a lot of people will sit back mm. and the extroverts will lean forward. You want a diversity of that perspective too. Yeah, of course. And then at the end of all this, you have all these issues, there's action items. What things do we want to take action on that are either amplifying what we did well or mitigating what we didn't do well? It's assigned and it's acted on. And then you follow up with that. And then you do another retrospective four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks afterwards. What happens is it becomes a repeatable process for quick feedback, creating psychological safety, pragmatic action, 
and everybody gets to learn. And it's amazing how much comes out of those. We do it with our clients. We do it internally and we've done it in different manifestations as we've gotten larger. So it scales really well. And can you do it in an all hands meeting or does it or not? That's a great question. We tried to do it at about 60 people. We okay. did we sorry, we did a, a retrospective on the company between, you know, up to about 60 people. And it started to break down. Yeah, that's what reason, in, in retrospective, it's 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 uh, obvious. There are too many people too distant from other parts of the organization. It works best when you have people who are deeply embedded in a project. Mm. Okay. So above a certain size, it doesn't work as well. Mm. So we don't do it in all hands as a company, but we do smaller ones. And then we learn from those and we might report on those from an, at an all hands. Um, and we've done that from time to time as well. Mm. And I mean, basically, talking about pragmatics, there's another practice you talk about, which is discovery and experimentation and the idea of actually going on the ground and listening to people, and yeah. listening to their lived experience. And it's part of user research as well, isn't it? But it's also yes. part of a leadership quest to go and understand my people and yeah. what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Um, often called Go Look See or Gemba. Or, but, mm-hmm. but, but I think the World Food Kitchen example you give is a great example of just how that can change the impact in a very short space of time. Could you just walk our listeners through that example? It's very powerful. Yeah. For, for those who don't know, World Central Kitchen is an organization whose purpose is to nourish communities after uh, crises, hurricanes, fires, things along mm-hmm. those lines. And the critical word in that is nourish, not feed, because it opens up more ways to solve the problem of nourishing a community. So they've gone into places when I think Greece was on fire last year. Mm -hmm. They went in there after hurricanes in Haiti and in New Orleans. And recently they were on the ground in Ukraine. And what they do is basically go and figure out how to get meals and nourishment to the people affected. But they don't necessarily do it by bringing a lot of food. They go and identify who are the bakers, who are the restaurant owners, who knows where food supplies are, and then what do they need to produce the food to nourish their communities? It's a much more systemic way of thinking about Mm -hmm. it. So when I, I got a chance to interview the CEO, Nate Mook, And he told a story of how they go into situations and are able to get on the ground so quickly Mm. in diverse places like Greece and Haiti, completely Mm. different. So he said, here's the way we do it. When there's a hurricane, we look for little white rectangles. And those little white rectangles are often trailer parks. We go to the trailer park because there's a density of people. There is a real clear and focused way of understanding how desperate people are, and often a network of community members so we can see who the resources are. It's not Mm. that they do that exclusively, but that's one of the first things you do. Mm. But crucially, they said, they don't go in with an answer. They don't go in with a plan. They go in with a, a method to find out what is happening on the ground. They don't know the answer. Mm. Once they get there, 
Then they start to understand what's on the ground. And that's when they make the call out to, to fundraise, to finance, to networks of restaurant people, to networks of food suppliers. And they're able to optimize that part of their system mm. once they get an answer or once mm. they get a hypothesis, really. Mm. And that's how they can adapt to all these different situations on the ground really, really quickly. It's fascinating how how efficient that is and how able they are, how quickly they are able to, to take action. And I love that example because it was so powerful. And I think basically they've, they've replaced planning and sort of um, linear thinking with curiosity and compassion. And I think it's really, we talk a lot about bringing compassion into the workplace, but you can see just how powerful that can be. Um, yeah, and the compassion piece leads me back to interior practices. And mm. you talk a lot about an intentional practice of stillness, and I know you have twenty-seven year meditation practice for yourself personally. And I'm sure that your sportsmanship and all the athletics you've done must also have coached you in some way and had an impact on your leadership. Yeah, I'd be really interested in terms of interior practices as to what. That journey, because it is, a, as you said before, it's a journey, not a destination, isn't it? Always is. Um, continuous learning. What the sports part of your life has brought to your understanding of leadership and particularly the way you lead your business? Yeah. Okay. There's so many places I can go. I'll try and uh, <laughs> summarize a little. I think very early on, in a really simple way, there's probably a lot of, I played soccer growing up. You, you know, at 10 years old, someone, Puts the puts the ball between your legs, doesn't move, and scores the winning goal, and your team that should have won lost because it's your fault, right? I remember that. I have had time. that, right? Uh, um, and so I think I underplayed how important that was mm-hmm. because having the experience of feeling embarrassed, losing, having to take responsibility, and still have to get on with it means that I have choices to make about how mm-hmm. to be resilient in that. The second level of that is, what do you do when that happens? What do I do when that happens to my teammate? Do mm. I yell at them or do I pick them up? Right? I might pick them up and then yell in their ear. That's going to say a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I might yell in their ear, but I might not do it. I don't want to induce shame mm. to the point that they can't mm. act. So that was a really early training. I think the the other training that has been useful for me has been around purpose. Mm. Why am I doing something? And the short version for for sport is I nearly quit between my junior year and senior year when I got dropped from the team before the championships. Uh, We didn't go that far this year, that year, Mm. but I got dropped after being on the team the entire time. It's embarrassing to have that happen in front of your friends. Mm. And later that summer, I was like, ah, maybe it was a good run. I should do something else. Uh, I should focus on my studies, et cetera. And in the two weeks that I did it, quit in my head, I really rediscovered, wait a second, I love this game. It's deeper than that. I've been playing since Mm. I was six. It's taken me all over the world. All I want is my letter jacket. If I play no more minutes, I get a letter jacket. Great, cool. (laughs) And, And now I have something to show my child when I have one. In the future, that mm. I played this is a representation of the love I have for the game, which is really mm. what it was. I came back and I relaxed. 
I knew what I was playing. I knew I was playing for how much I enjoyed this game, the competition, et cetera. And what happened when I relaxed, my game got better. Yeah. It went to the roof. I started and I got to the national final and played 90 minutes in the national final. A dream I've always had. That just unfolded. And, that just yeah. unfolded for you. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And I won, right? This is one thing we played about. I mean, we <laughs> won. That's also brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> So what I learned from that was, wait a second, it doesn't have to be about the goal. I didn't mm. go in with the goal of, I want to win the national championship. I want to win every game, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was, I want to align with my purpose. And the purpose was, get the letter jacket because that represented the love I had for the game. That's mm. why I was. Mm. And when I was aligned, things started to happen. And in business and in my career, when things have been aligned, things start to happen. And by the way, it's not that I applied that that lesson immediately. I probably <laughs> figured it out 15 years later. So whatever. But, mm -hmm. um, but I think the the key is um, that that alignment. The last thing I'd say, because it is a deep topic, mm -hmm. is practicing at the edge. We would go into practice as we get into NCAA, as we got into the finals in the tournament, we would run our faces off run our legs off. Right. The minute. reason why in the back, in, in mm. retrospect, we had to be fit. Mm. But it's about making decisions in the last 10 minutes of a game when you're exhausted, your mind wants to shut off. And of course you make bad, you can make mm. bad decisions. If you practice at the edge when you're uncomfortable and have tools to make those decisions, it comes back when it's actually in the game and the mm. confidence that we had in the last 10 minutes of the game that no one is going to beat us if we're ahead or we have the ability to come back. Mm. Athletes, musicians, writers, extreme sports, they all practice at the edge. And as they practice at the edge, they get better at <clears> it and the edge moves a little further. Mm. And then they learn how to deal with that discomfort and they're able to move forward in ways that other people are not. That's been absolutely critical for me because I realized that when things are chaotic at my mm -hmm. company or we have tough decisions to make and it may be really stressing people out, I'm able to kind of go back in this place and say, okay, I've been at the edge of my own emotional well-being, being really stressed out, being really, really tired, but I know how to manage through it and I don't add to the stress by wondering if I can make it. It's just here we are. Mm. Yeah, so it's based on intentional practice, and you're basically um, going to the gym with your edge muscle. If I if I can put yeah, it like that's that. right. Yeah. That's right. Lifting weights to make sure that you can hold whatever comes next, type of thing. Yep. So, so if I come back to that and your meditation practice, and you speak in the book about the mastery of craft, so mm -hmm. exterior practice and the mastery of self. Yeah. What's your been your biggest shift in mastery of self? since you started your meditation practice mm. in your leadership, I mean? Yeah. I think the biggest shift is that being a master, you know, master of craft is sort of, I am going to be the best at my position. I know all the ins and outs. The transition to master yourself, mm. is not a linear leap. It's an orthogonal leap. Mm. And in some ways, it takes saying, ah, I'm at the beginning of that journey. 
of being a leader, of being someone who directs people's attention rather than directing their work. Mm. Yeah. That is much harder. And I came into contact with where I was terrible <laughs> and then realized that, oh, wait, I'm a beginner. That's why I'm terrible. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't easy. It wasn't linear. It wasn't an obvious thing. But once I released that thing of saying, I have to know all the answers, then it opened up space to start to explore, well, how do I respond as a person? How do I respond as a human? How do I respond to others when they bring mm. their humanness to the equation or to a meeting? Mm. That's That's been, I think, the biggest shift. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've spoken about the power of diverse networks and you talk about the analogy with imaginal cells and the caterpillar mm. having a butterfly and how imaginal cells should be finding other imaginal cells. Yes. Um, but what I like about that analogy as well is when that caterpillar goes into that gooey place with mm -hmm. the imaginal cells working, that's quite a dark place, isn't it? And I think there are quite a few dark places as you jump from S-curve to S-curve pushing yep. towards the edge and right. I'm really interested in what your biggest learning is from constantly constantly in sport in life in business moving to the edge well I think the biggest learnings are it is exciting there is a cost yeah. there is a cost the cost is is very easy to continue going without rest hmm. So for me, high performance is hard work and recovery. And so learning how to do the recovery as part of high performance mm. has been something I've learned and continue to explore. Sleep for me is like the, the thing, right? Yeah. And, and, and I'm not good at it, but I continue to lean into it because it's so important, that recovery. I think the second thing is it can be a little lonely. Yeah. Even writing the book, does anybody have any reason <laughs> to listen to anything I have to say? And that is a very existential question if, okay. if one wants to go there. And so for me, it was exciting and scary to mm -hmm. say, I don't know if anybody's going to read it. How can I find out? And will I do it anyway? And so you did uh, it anyway. So <laughs> yeah, so I did it anyway. Yeah, um, so learning learning how to how to navigate those patterns mm. of doubt mm. and of and knowing where to get support has been a learning mm. on that last piece. Yeah, and this gets to the imaginal cells. No one does this alone, and it sounds trivial to say, but it is absolutely true that I did the work as CEO, the writing of the book, with the help of so many people. Mm. So I think the critical learning is I need to ask earlier and more often for feedback, for help, for guidance, for support, whatever happens to be. Because if I wait, I often make it much harder on myself than if I just ask for some help. Mm. And it's extraordinary when people say, why haven't you asked me? I've been waiting. <laughs> <laughs> it's interior um, practice again though isn't it that's right that's right it's like oh right okay i did it again how can i do better next time yeah and we're, st we're still slightly in that formatting of self-sufficiency is the sign of a good leader which that's i think right. comes from the educational formatting of always knowing the right answer and and having all the all the knowledge etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think 
that's quite hard to detach oneself from, particularly yeah. in organizations where busyness and delivering and you know how much how hard you work is the metric by which you're measured in terms of good leadership. Right, right, right. And and it could not be better, could not be further from the truth. Yeah. Sometimes you have to surge, sometimes you have to work yeah. hard. Mm. Um, but creating space for people mm. be their thriving selves is I think more sustainable. Mm. No, I think I know it's more sustainable. Mm. It just requires a little bit of a different skill set, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. Mm. Which can be practiced. And that's yeah. the I think that's the thing is all of these, and part of the intention of the book is mm. these are practices, interior mm. practices, exterior practices. You can start today. And the second best time is to start tomorrow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And start working with this and getting better. And it's uh, it's it's amazing how much I continue to learn from mm. from other people on that because I'm not perfect at it. Mm. But I do know it's about practice and mm. getting reps in, and then eventually you get better. You've almost preempted my final question, which was: no, be, do, do you have a do you have a call for action for all our listeners who are thinking, yeah, maybe I should start to move more towards the edge? Yeah. Well, buy the book is certainly yeah. uh, one. It's in all the forums. It's in audiobook. It's in um, a ebook as well. I think second is I would say the call to action is for listeners after this podcast to take five minutes, maybe ten minutes, and think of something that's been on your mind that you don't know the answer. Really, you might tell people you know the answer, but you actually don't know yeah. the answer, and sit with what feelings come up about that? It's a way of practicing awareness. It's a way of practicing, it's a little meditation in a lot of ways, Hmm. Um, but it's about being self-aware and then see what you do with that. Hmm. How do you you feel with that? Oh, and watch how it changes. You Hmm. might be like, oh, it feels really bad. And then, oh, it's okay now. And, oh, I'm kind of fired up to learn about this. Hmm. Um, It's not just one reaction that one has. Mm. And I like that in the book. It's the counterfactuals part, isn't it, where you talk about trying on a decision. I really oh, yeah. like the idea of trying on a decision. And then now you're saying and sit with what you've just tried on and see what, what happens. Yep. It's a really powerful tool. Mm. Counterfactuals, if I may, if, if we have a second, there's a thing in the book called premortems, which you mentioned is mm. counterfactual. And it's one of my favorite things. I've been doing some talks and I've started to turn this a little bit into a workshop. But for listeners, essentially, it's saying the prompt is, okay, you and your team have been working really hard on a project. It's about to launch in about three weeks. Now, I want you to imagine that project in about a year is an absolute failure. Everybody hates you. You've cost a lot of money. People have left. They're all mad. What happened? As a leader, I will say, yeah. I did this and I did that. The CEO wasn't paying attention, whatever. Usually get some laughs. And then it opens up the creative space for people to say, well, this went wrong and this went wrong. And you can be fantastical about it. Mm. But then you take all that stuff on the table and say, okay, how could we mitigate? Or sorry, what can we do now to mitigate that from happening? And it's amazing how much clearer you are, a team is. Mm imagining that future and then learning from the future to make sure you can prevent it in the first place. Usually it's around communication, frankly. Mm -hmm. We've done it with our clients. We do it with our internal teams and I do it for myself. 
And what it turns out is you're learning from future regrets. And there's a book by Daniel Pink that he mm. just wrote called uh, The Power of Regret. Yeah. And I want to write him. I haven't done it yet to say, this is actually learning from your future regrets, mm. not your past regrets. And being able to do something is a really powerful tool. And so that's a really strong way to make decisions when you don't, either when you have two great options or when you don't know the which way to go. And it's you try on a, a certain decision in a really vivid, concrete, mm. colorful, sensory way. I love the idea of trying on a decision. So I'm going to leave our listeners with trying on a decision for a created future. I love that. Mm-hmm. Everett, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights and what's in your book and your story. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? A couple of places. EverettHarper.com is my uh, book and author and personal site. Mm-hmm. Trust.works, T-R-U-S-S dot works, is our company. We do human-centered and value-driven software. If you like how we apply these things uh, during this conversation, we do it for clients. We do it for organizations. And then third, all my Twitter and LinkedIn handle is Everett Harper. So it's consistent across uh, all the social media. So please, if you uh, see the book and like it, review it. And it's the point is to start conversations. So if there's things that work or things that you've taken it far, far better than we've done, perfect. Uh, I'd love to hear it from because it's really exciting to hear what people are doing and how they're applying and, and advances that they're making that are really effective. Excellent. Thank you. So I'll leave our listeners to come and join the imaginal community. Yeah, yeah, you what yeah. Doing with your work. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the learning it brought. And if so, please head over to iTunes and give us a review. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm-hmm.